0: The Fantasy Sports Radio Network is now going for the green with Daily Roto. Welcome to Going for the Green. I'm Mike Leone here with Colin Drew and Drew Dinkmeyer of DailyRoto.com bringing you this week's PGA DFS golf show. And guys, before we get into the WGC Mexico, let's recap last week the Honda Classic and uh, Justin Thomas with his eighth victory in 101 tour events that actually gives him a similar win trajectory to both Jordan Speeth and Rory McIlroy and similar amount of events to start the career but uh, a lot less T20s mixed in there so how you guys feeling about JT and his career and where, where do you put him kind of like relative to Spieth we'll start with Colin. Yeah, I mean, I think it's tough. He's
1: obviously shown a ton of upside um, and just hasn't quite had the consistency. I don't know how much of that is just maybe he fits certain types of courses better or how much of that is just kind of variance. Uh, but obviously a really strong young player and a guy who was well regarded in the amateur rankings as well. I believe he was ranked ahead of speed at uh, one point in time. And so I definitely think he's got you know a lot, a lot of long-term potential and uh, should be an exciting player to watch.
0: Yeah, that's definitely an interesting facet is the, you know, did he get lucky to win this amount of events given that he doesn't have as many top 20s or is there some validation to that? And one of the guys I like this week, which we'll get into is Paul Casey, who's kind of like the opposite where our finish probability model likes him a lot because of his scoring averages and whatnot, but he, uh, seems to have difficulty coming away with the W. Uh, Drew, I know you're an etiquette guy. You've got this whole airline take where people can't recline their seats and blah 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 so i'm interested in your take jt did in that final round get a fan ejected because the fan cheered for him to get in the bunker after he shot not while he shot what's what's your hot take on this or do you not have a hot take on it i'm
2: not i'm not sure it's so hot i don't even think the airline thing is that hot i mean you get into you get into a car in the back seat of a car and like the first thing i do whenever i'm in the back seat of a car somebody in the front seat always asks do you have enough room like that's the first thing setting that is, why wouldn't you just do the same thing? Like, oh, I do you have enough room back there? I was thinking about leaning back my uh, my my seat. I was thinking about recline. Why don't people ask that on a plane? I don't understand. Anyways, the uh, the etiquette thing with JT, I am very torn on because I one have an extensive background as a heckler, which uh, some of <laughs> you may or may not know. Um, I heckled a lot in college, but particularly at college baseball games. Like so legitimate much so,
0: heckling for anyone yeah, out like, there who's like probably thinking of this, like not to the extent that like this was serious heckling.
2: Yeah, so much so that um, the Harvard sports section wrote up a whole article about the Dartmouth uh, hecklers and labeled us the Loudmouth Brigade, which I really enjoyed that name. Um, <laughs> so I appreciate heckling. Um, I do think once you get to a certain age, it's probably not becoming and I think I reached that age uh, many, many years ago. So I don't know the age of this person in question, uh, but I will say this. I don't like the response from JT in the sense that it's like, hey, you're out of here. I'm the authoritarian. I'm in control here. Like, like, I don't know if it's on the responsibility of the PGA Tour to, like, nip this stuff in the bud earlier. I don't know if it's on the responsibility of, like, JT to walk over to you know a, a tour official or someone and be like hey this guy's giving me a hard time what, can you please handle this but i don't i didn't like the the take from jt that was just like hey i'm in control here you're out of here and like flaunting his power over the situation i was i, I was not particularly uh, enamored with that and the other thing is it wasn't exactly heckling i mean
0: let's say we're there cheering for our dk golf teams right and we don't have jt and we want him to get in the bunker you know that's not i mean you can cheer for a guy to miss a free throw at an nba event I mean, as long as you're not screwing up their swing and whatnot and, you know, not cursing or anything, I think you should be able to cheer for the outcome you want. You're the fan. You're there cheering for the result. But I don't know. Colin, you got anything to add for this before (laughs) we talk like actual DFS? No, I mean, I
1: I think I agree. Generally, you should be able to cheer for whoever you want, as long as it's not inappropriate, offensive, racist, whatever. That was pretty harmless. And I don't know. In general, I think the tour needs a little more edge, not less edge. So I I, kind of think that. JT was out of line there, and the fan was probably uh, probably in the right, unless there was a lot of background that we don't really know about.
0: Yeah, definitely. All right, so as far as DFS went, Honda Classic, always a somewhat variant event with that bear trap. I know we had a few guys, Ryan Palmer, uh, I had Ian Poulter, and a couple other guys that you're just hoping they come out of that bear trap unscathed on Friday to make the cut, and it just didn't happen, you know. One of the fewest amount of 6-6 six six amount of players making a cut in lineups in GPPs that I've seen in a long time playing this. So it was kind of messy. I know, Colin, you did come away with a pretty good week because you had one team in the secondary $400 GPP. So not the, the huge main one, but the second one, which you, you play second place with a balanced contrarian team of Rafael Cabrabello, Duffner, Fleetwood, and Scott, Adam Scott, and Webb Simpson. So, uh, I don't know if you want to talk a little bit about how that team came together and how the week in general played out for you outside of that nice big hit.
1: Yeah. I mean, that team in general was uh, just trying to go similar approach to the other week um, that you had, where it was really a balanced team of like strong six of six odds. So a bunch of golfers that I expected to make the cut, but within given price ranges, trying to go a little bit more contrarian. Some of the picks, like Webb Simpson was a guy that if you compared the ownership projections to his top 20 odds, he really popped as one of the best leverage plays in the tournament. Um, and obviously got like a really strong result from him. I also, it was, you know, just fortunate in general. I think it was less than 2% of teams got six of six, less than 5% maybe got five of six. So it was, uh, one of the like most biggest carnage weeks that was out there. And, the other thing I think was just like the game selection. My team didn't have the winner. You know, it didn't have either of the guys in the playoff. Um, It was kind of very solid but unspectacular, but it was still good enough because the field was small. And uh, I would have made, I think, like $1,500 less if I had entered that into the the main $400 GPP. So obviously the upside was a little bit higher in that one, but the kind of variance is lower. in the the one that I chose and ended up, at least for this week, being... A better decision. And so I think that's one of the things people should be thinking about. Um, especially those who are kind of more concerned with their short-term results is entering some of those smaller field contests. I know a lot of weeks I talk about the three maxes, but some of the secondary DK contests are good for that as well.
0: Yeah. You get the flatter payout structure. And as you said, there's, you know, more margin for error in which you can still win an event. I know I like to play the country club a lot and it's a similar type thing to playing that secondary. 400 gpp where you you just don't have as many people in there uh and you know when when that carnage hits if you can escape it even if you don't have a perfect lineup you're looking pretty good and i know i had a frustrating week because i was close to crushing the field on six out of sixes didn't quite get there i was a little bit above average about double um but even having double the field in six to six meant i didn't have a whole bunch of chances there with my 150 mme entries in the dog leg to get it right. I was way above in five of six. So I salvaged getting a bunch of min caches there, especially with the weekend of playing a lot easier having uh, those golfers going. Even if you didn't have the best finishes, you were, you were picking up a lot of points on those teams that were ravaged with four of six and whatnot who uh, had a very difficult time caching. So, um, before we move on to this week, uh, Drew, I don't know if you have takeaways from your entries last week.
2: No, I got smashed. I had a weird distribution <laughs> where I had uh, way less one of six, way less two of six, way less three of six, way more four of six, way more five of six, way less uh, six of six. So it was like it was just a weird distribution. Um, didn't really feel that close to anything great this this past week. I was underweight on Norin. Um, I was my two heaviest own guys were Cabrera, Bayo and, and Charles Howell. And Charles Howell missed the cut, so uh, never really felt in it. Um, that happens with golf from time to time, so shake it off, on to the next one.
0: Yeah, the Keimer withdrawal was uh, yeah. w- one that hurt, and we're moving on to the WGC Mexico, played at the Club de Golf, Chapultepec, and uh, I did my best with the pronunciation there. Um We did have a withdrawal here last year, though, right? Was this the Stenson uh, withdrawal? Was, uh, was that yeah, two this years was, ago?
2: No, this was Stenson last year where he, he birdied the first two holes, and I – I was heavy on Stenson that week and he, uh, you just get so excited. You get two birdies to open up and then the floodgates opened on Bogey's and then, um, supposedly the floodgates opened on Henrik <laughs> and he had to, he had to withdraw a little too much of that Mexican water.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I remember. Hoop emoji uh, week.
0: <laughs> yeah. Uh, Tyrell Haddon, didn't he have something going
2: on too? He ended up finishing. I think he actually yeah. had, was like top 15. Yeah, he battled through, but he said he had no more clean pairs of underwear, uh, <laughs> but for the, for the final round or something like that. There was, there were some funny tweets going on, but, uh, it has led to, um, I know there's a, there's a couple top guys that aren't here this week and I know Stenson is one of them. So I guess it was not that great of an experience for some of the players because this is a guaranteed, you know, paycheck. This is usually an event that all the top guys play in.
0: Absolutely, and it's played at high altitude. And I know, Colin, you've given me some interesting notes on, on some of the distance stuff in the in the past because that altitude can make the distances misleading. You're going to see some pretty massive drives here, and we've got three par fives. They're at 575, 625, and 625. But because of that altitude, uh, they're playing shorter, and they yielded 22 Eagles, 400-plus birdies. I believe that was in last year's tournament. Yeah, and I think... Even at the altitude, you were seeing
1: DJ hit 300 yard three irons and, you know, maybe he still s- hits them pretty far in regular altitude, but it's definitely a, it, like on paper, it's a super long course, but that's a little bit misleading. Um, I think that, you know, it, it's definitely got tight tree line fairways and, uh, I, I, most of the leaders, if you look at the course history database that we have over on dailyroto.com actually excelled in their strokes gained approach. Um, and so the, the accuracy, You know, off the tee I think was important, but I think that the, the strong approach game is really what led to the leaderboard last week. The only thing that was a little bit confusing to me is the guys who performed really well on stroke, and approach last year were not guys I typically consider great at the approach. So you had, uh, like Thomas Peters up there, DJ, Rom. So a lot of the bombers ended up having good approach weeks and I don't know, I don't know what to make of that. Um, I think we saw the course fit narratives take a little bit of a beating last week. So I'm not trying to, get too far down that rabbit hole this week
0: yeah that's one of the things we didn't recap from last week but we saw you know heading into the tournament it seemed like we were targeting you know the accurate golfers with all the water and the wind that was gonna play there we wanted some guys that were good around the green as well and we got some Guys that you would think of as inaccurate bombers up top, right? Like, especially some of the cheaper golfers and Jamie Lovemark and Luke List. It was also interesting to note that Tiger played very well and he was top 20 in strokes gained approach. Uh, and, you know, some people think that, you know, we're thinking, oh, he's so inaccurate off the tee. He's not going to be a good play. Well, he was able to club down some and be maybe a bit more accurate off the tee he was very good in approach. So, uh, yeah, that course fit sometimes it's, Fun to look at in retrospect, but sometimes it can be very hard to look at ahead of time. And I know in our Slack chat over on dailyroto.com, as part of the premium golf package, there we had a good conversation this morning about how a lot of weeks we see people trying to isolate these strokes gained statistics. You know, I want guys who are good off the tee, I want guys who are good in terms of approach. And I think the strokes gained statistics are very, you know, they, they serve a purpose and they're very good in telling what guys are good at in general we also I like a lot strokes gained t to green it's very simple but uh, you cut out some of the variance in the short game in terms of putting uh, in that statistic but as far as isolating what's important sometimes you're not necessarily isolating the skills that matter you know strokes gained off the t is one example there where you're not isolating the difference between distance and accuracy you know it's a catch-all metric that's kind of combining the two to an extent. And then you've got strokes gained around the green. Colin, you gave this example in Slack where someone might not have a lot of strokes gained around the green because they're hitting greens. They're just not attempting shots around the green. It doesn't mean that they're bad around the green. So um, if you're targeting strokes gained around the green, you might be targeting the wrong golfers for the wrong reasons. So, uh, Colin, I don't know if you want to speak a little bit more to that, but that does fit into, in general, uh, our philosophy and the philosophy of data golf who powers our projections which is let's just pack as much skill into our lineups as we can and focus on the best golfers uh, at the best prices as simple as that sounds because a lot of the course fit stuff stroke skiing stuff uh, can be important add some nuance but it's very hard to get a clear signal from it
1: yeah, I mean if you just take a simple example of if you created the perfect golfer who hit every fairway and every green, like their strokes gained around the green would be zero because they'd never had the the chance. Now obviously there's some nuance just because it's it's based on yardage buckets, so it's not like the shots literally have to come from around the green. So if DJ hits a three fifty drive on a four hundred yard par four, like his second shot's still gonna be under that around the green bucket versus the approach bucket, but uh, just in general, it's because not every golfer is going to take those. I think it's, you know, something you definitely don't want to lean on as much. And um, a, a lot of times the guys who are really good off the tee don't have the same opportunity to uh, gain strokes, you know, on approach uh, in, in certain weeks because the kind of distribution of what a 100-yard approach shots might look like is a lot more narrow than the distribution of what approach shots from, like, 200 yards might look like. So I think that's just another thing with all of the isolated metrics that is a little bit to – Hard to tease out sometimes. I will say this week, you know, the three par fives you mentioned, there's also a drivable, uh, first hole. It's like a, a little bit of a dog legs, but, uh, most of the guys can either get it up by the green or they can get it into the bunkers or a couple hit the green. Uh, those holes accounted for 43% of the birdies last year at this event, um, and almost all of the Eagles except for, you know, the rare hole out. So, I think one of the things with a no-cut event and some of the value golfers uh, where you don't need them to necessarily place high is trying to you know find guys that can take advantage of those four holes because they're going to be very important for DK scoring.
0: Yeah, and it's also something to take into consideration if you're going to play weekend golf. And it is a no-cut event, and that's going to affect strategy because you don't have the variance of the cut, which as we saw last week, uh, can play a, a huge role in how things shake out. So uh, it's interesting to see how approaches change. My initial inkling, I don't know if it's going to drive me to necessarily be chalkier, be more contrarian. Uh, I guess the reason you might be a little bit more chalky in a no-cut event is that, uh, you, again, with the lack of swing on the variance of a high-owned golfer getting cut, for example, uh, you don't benefit as much from those contrarian stances. And you've also, assuming the chalk is actually good chalk, you've got a guaranteed four rounds barring the uh, stunts and withdraws to play out the tournament, which means you've got more chances for the skill to actually shine through. And at the end, You know Each round matters. I think sometimes we get this event order bias where a guy does really well the first two rounds or maybe a guy backdoors the last two rounds and we treat these guys very differently. But all four rounds matter the same, especially, obviously, in a no-cut event. So my initial takeaway is that I think I'm more likely to take strong stances on guys that I really like or dislike where I'm not going to be as afraid to fully fade someone. I'm not going to be as afraid to maybe put a guy in 50% of my lineups if i really really like him because i know i'm getting those guaranteed four rounds and i'm not going to get you know eliminated basically because a guy misses the cut but as far as the chalk and training direction i'm not sure so i'll throw it to drew because i know your philosophy in general in tournaments for golf is that you know that there's a lot of variance in golf and you're just going to find as many areas as you can to take advantage of that volatility by guys that are either under-owned or over-owned for whatever reasons.
2: Yeah, so I think the no-cut does loosen up some of the variance uh, in, in terms of the, the golf event and certainly makes it so that you can feel stronger about just playing the plays that you think are the best and less, a little bit less game theory. Um, we'll see where ownership projections kind of land ultimately. It looks like early on some of our ownership projections actually we we like some of um you know data golf's projections actually like some players that are looking like they're going to be relatively low owned anyway so that kind of works out for me um but in general you know in a no cut event i will ramp up my ownership percentages a little bit on players i generally am a little bit more of a spread the risk type guy i think last week i said my two highest owned players were rafael cabrera beo and charles howe the third and i had about 40 percent on each of those guys in my mass multi-entry um generally most weeks it's around 30 the 35 that i kind of cap things this week with the smaller field the no cut that'll certainly rise naturally but one thing that i just wanted to kind of get across in terms of the idea of trying to take advantage of sports that have hefty variance is really try to use ownership in your favor and this is where i think ownership projections are really really valuable in in games that have high variance like golf and so you know I think a lot of times people spend a lot of time trying to identify players that have a particularly strong course fit or a strong course history or these different things and there's a lot of you know mixed data on how much uh, they really add value the course history debate is ongoing on Twitter kind of forever in in DFS golf uh, uh, history but I think a lot of time is spent there, and I think a lot more time should be just spent on trying to figure out how good the golfer is long term and then trying to figure out how to take advantage of their le- their uh, their ownership percentage. So like last week, for example, you know, a lot of people like Chaston Headley as a really good course fit, and his uh, recent performance had been great. There were a lot of signs that would suggest he was a good play and ownership was trending in that direction. And you guys had mentioned, hey, if he's going to be heavily owned, this is kind of an easy spot. You know, he doesn't long term project quite as well as guys like Rafa Cabrera-Beo or guys like Russell Henley that are priced around him just take that advantage and the ownership that the leverage is giving you where he's 2X a guy like Russell Henley and play Russell Henley and just know that there's a lot of variance in golf and weird stuff happens all the time. Guys like Ricky Fowler can miss the cut despite looking like great plays um, and just kind of use the leverage and the variance of the sport in its of itself to your advantage. So that's why I personally don't spend a lot of time uh, placing emphasis on things like course history. I don't spend a lot of time placing emphasis on things like course fit because generally these are the things people are looking to gravitate towards plays. And on course history, it always gets priced in anyway. Guys get priced up like a Russell Knox last week was 9K. Um, so I would rather take my chance on using the variance to my advantage by Thinking of the things that people aren't, that aren't on the top of people's minds, which is how good this player is long term. And so, you know, some guys to me that like may have just had one bad event recently, but have been really great long term. Uh, like last week, Daniel Berger and Webb Simpson kind of fit that mold. Those guys are always going to be good plays to me when I can get the ownership down because of something in a recent event or something with a course history or a course fit.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And let's start getting into some of the roster construction and specific plays for this week i do think that uh it's another interesting week for that balanced contrarian type strategy that colin had success with last week i had success with a few weeks ago if you gravitate away from dustin johnson we'll talk about in a second you get some of the guys in the 8k range that have similar win probabilities to the non-dj studs or at least in the same ballpark so You can get a more balanced lineup with a ton of upside without sacrificing a whole ton of high end equity. So I think that's interesting. But as we look at the expensive golfers this week, we've got Dustin Johnson up top at 11,900. Only other golfer above 10 K is going to be Justin Thomas at 11,500. And I was surprised how much separation Dustin Johnson has in the data golf models from the other expensive players. We've got him at, you know, almost double the win equity of Jordan Speth, who we have second in win probability. And in terms of the fantasy model, and those two models run a little bit differently with the uh, finish probability model purely off long-term adjusted scoring averages and the fantasy model baking in some course history, recent form, and uh, as well as the actual fantasy finishes in the past. So it, it was interesting to see DJ so far ahead in both. He's obviously priced that way, but he did win this event last year. And the thing that makes it a tough roster construction decision is you got some really good 8K values uh, that you might have to bypass if you play DJ. And it's hard to go DJ 8K sub 7K because it seems like for ever since we've started this radio show, the, the sub 7K guys just haven't had a whole ton of appeal. But you still have an average of 7620 to spend. And this 7k range as usual is pretty loaded. So Colin, do you have any liens for how Dustin Johnson is fitting your roster construction early on this week? Yeah, I think between these two guys,
1: um, especially if, unless there are signs that like JT's ownership would be like sub 10%, I'm probably not going to play any JT this week at that price think that DJ is such a better play um, just based on his long-term form and even short-term he's been really strong as well and so it's hard to see me at similar ownership levels playing uh, JT over DJ but like you said like DJ is tough to fit in like it seems like the the optimal way to build if you want to play DJ is to skip all through the 8k range and just go DJ with a bunch of guys in the 7k just because there's not a lot of good value down below 7,000 so um, my early lean is that you're just sacrificing too much by paying for DJ. And so, um, I think that a lot of my teams will start at a cheaper price and try to grab kind of more top end golfers.
0: Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. And I think I'll also be, you know, close to full fading Justin Thomas, assuming he has, you know, some carryover and ownership because he did so well last week and at this price tag. That's one of the differences between a no cut event. In this smaller field type event, I, I'm going to take a stance like that. Whereas uh, in a normal size field and a cut event, I'd still have some Justin Thomas just because I'd want to be so spread out among, you know, the top X percentage chance of guys at winning, even if they're not necessarily the best values. But we move beyond the 11K range. In the sub 11K range, you've got Jordan Spieth, John Rahm, Tommy Fleetwood, uh, representing the 10K tier. And then in the high nines, You've also got Ricky Fowler and Justin Rose there. And, uh, this tier is interesting. I'm always a sucker for Rom. I just love the upside in terms of DK scoring ability. And when you make it a, a no cut event where you've got those holes that, those four holes that you mentioned, that I think Rom can take advantage of. He's the guy that I'm initially looking at here, uh, for the most of my lineups. The guy that, Right now in our initial ownership projections, projections for the least amount of ownership is Ricky Fowler. And I'm having a tough time with him because our model suggests that maybe he shouldn't have as high of ownership as the other guys. But it's also could be markedly lower. And going back to what Drew had said with his tournament strategy, this guy had, you know, one bad week last week. He burned a lot of people. And they're probably not going to go back to him this week. But we've still, you know, even with him not writing that well, we've still got him, you know, just outside the top five and win probability, basically in line with Paul Casey as the fifth best win probability. So, Drew, what's sticking out to you about this next tier of golfers?
2: I think people like to think of John Rahm as a volatile golfer because of like his temperament on the course. And I don't think his greatness so far on the PJ Tour is properly appreciated by all. Um, so he has played 46 events on the Tour, and he's had 20 top 10s. And he's missed five cuts. So 43% of the events he's played on Tour, he's been in the top 10. That is insane. Um, so when you get a price discount, a significant one from Dustin Johnson and Justin Thomas, I um, I feel like Ron just stands out as such a great value and then you add in whatever you know other takes you want to have on in terms of like you know the distance setting up well for scoring on par 5s and different things uh, that only adds to to my confidence level in him but I I really really like uh, this John Ron price tag I think his form uh, both long-term and recent has been great. I think with Speed there's a little bit of a question mark as to the recent form. With Ricky, you know, two missed cuts in the four events he's played this year, a little bit of a concern in the recent form as well. Uh, so Rom is the guy that really sticks out to me. And um, it'll be interesting to see where ownership stuff lands because if, you know, if, Spieth and Rom are somewhat tight and JT and DJ are somewhat tight, um, I could see myself having a lot of Rom this week uh, simply because he stands out to me as the best value of all those top golfers. The one guy I have the most trouble with in this
0: tier is Tommy Fleetwood, who is, you know, over the last year and a half or so, he's really improved his golf game. I, even just like the last 365 days, I think you can say he's, he's really... Just taken a big step forward and you know, there's a pretty cool video that they had on, on the Euro Tour Twitter account. They do a really good job with their Twitter account just talking about how, uh, you know, he had some success in, in the beginning of his career and then he just assumed he would keep getting better and then it, the exact opposite happened, kind of completely fell apart, had to get things back together and then just had this quick ascension, ascension after he did figure things out and I think the models sometimes have a little bit of a tough time with him, but he's now at the point where he's priced pretty appropriately. Uh, he's likely going to be chalky. People like to play Fleetwood. They played him last week. He did well last week. He was second here last year. Uh, people are going to buy into that. So I feel like I'm always underweight on Fleetwood. I don't necessarily want to be, but I look at the information, and I think it's going to happen again. Colin, do you have a stance on Fleetwood? I mean, I think –
1: it seems like one of those plays that uh, projects fine in kind of all the different models that we have and obviously has a decent chance to have a strong finish here, but it seems like they'll be over-owned in DFS compared to the pivot options priced around them. So I, it makes sense to me to, you know, pay up for Romer's Fief or pay down for Fowler or Rose if you're going to get a big ownership discount on them and if you're you know, going to get guys that project slightly better in most of our models. So uh, I have a feeling that when it comes down to it, I won't end up with a lot of time with Fleetwood this week. It doesn't mean I think he's a bad play, but I don't necessarily think that's the best way to go about building tournament line- lineups over the long
2: run. Just to hop in on Fleetwood, if you set the data golf um... – Features and settings that you can toggle between long-term form, recent form, and course history. If you removed everything to zero except recent form and put that at a, as a ten, all of your components, Tommy Fleetwood be would be the second highest projected uh, score in the tournament and one of the top values among the top guys. So it it just goes to show that the challenge with evaluating a guy like Fleetwood is the recent form. You know, as you said, Mike, over like the last year or so has been so incredible, but the long-term form, when you, when you pull out and, and, uh, zoom out a couple of years, you see like, you know, six missed cuts in 28 events in 2017, six missed cuts in 27 events in 2016. That is not the level of consistency that you see from one of these really top golfers now. On a, you know, on a on a four round event where you're guaranteed no cut and given his recent form, um, you know, he's probably a pretty darn good play. But like Colin said, when you get that ownership added in on top of it, there's probably just better ways from a game theory perspective uh, to attack.
1: Yeah, and it, it's not like he's projected poorly. Like he's projected yeah. a line with Sergio Garcia. You know, this is a elite world class golfer that he's projected right alongside. It's just higher price, higher ownership, same projection to me makes Sergio the play.
0: Yeah. And Sergio down there at $9,100, you're going to save $900. You also got Phil at $9,300. Those are the only two other golfers in the 9K range. I think when you move beyond them, uh, this 8K range, 7K range, we can kind of cluster and talk about together a lot of good values here. Uh, in my mind, I've separated a lot of guys into like two groups, the guys that I think have really good finish odds and the guys that I think do DK scoring well, and obviously both are going to be important for tournaments, even though we don't have that made-cut variance factor for this week with there being no cut. Um, sometimes I might go overboard trying to separate guys in those tiers when there's guys that obviously are going to do both things well. And one guy that I've come across that I've gotten a kick on is Paul Casey. And I know he's going to be somewhat chalky. Hopefully he's not crazy chalk. Um, definitely not going to be low-owned because everyone's going to see him and see him at this $8,400 price tag and think he's a good play. But there's this narrative around him of not having this big-time upside uh, because... I don't I don't remember the last time he's won an event, but I know he hasn't won one recently, but I was looking, actually I was trying to compare him to Sergio Garcia and Data Golf has this 40 round moving average where you can look at the strokes gain trends, uh tee to green total, you can look at it in a bunch of different ways, but it was really interesting to see that Casey was clearly ahead of Sergio Garcia. And it was kind of hurt me because I have this pro-Sergio bias. But then I also threw in Dustin Johnson and Jordan Spieth for that comparison. And the 40-round moving average for Casey, you know, right now he's at his peak that he's ever been. So keep that in mind. But he's right with DJ and Spieth. And I was really surprised by that. So he's someone that rates well in both our models. He has the fifth highest win probability in our finish model. And in you know you think of him as more of a guy that you want finish points out of not necessarily a birdie maker but someone in a similar price range who I also really like that I think of as a DK score Tony Finau. If you compare using our player comparison tool as part of the uh, daily roto premium golf package, we have a metric that says birdies per round and then it compares versus the field. So it takes into account the field strength and the you know just how easy the course are playing and. Casey actually beats now over most time frames in that, so he's not just a guy who can have good finishes; he's a guy who's can score DK as well. So he's my favorite play in the sub nine K range. Uh, Colin, who's your favorite play in the sub nine K range?
1: a lot of this will end up coming down to ownership. One of the things I'm trying to f- figure out is, like, but when the week settles, are people still going to be hammering kind of the course history guys just because they did well? Last year on a one-year sample here, or are people gonna, I guess, (laughs) smarten up a little bit in my opinion and take kind of a longer-term view on some of these guys? Just because the guys who are getting uh, like touted right now are it's just like people rattling off the leaderboard from last year. You know, Peters, Fisher, Phil Mickelson. I think Phil's course history here was particularly deceiving, um, just because his short game was like incredible that week. Uh, if you look at the course history data viz that we have for free over on Daily Roto, you can dive into kind of how he finished here, but also look at it in the different strokes scan metrics. And his strokes gained around the green and strokes gained putting were off the charts that week. And so that shows me that this course didn't necessarily fit him very well as much as
2: he kind of scrambled his way around it. So, um, Also, kind of- he cheated. I mean, he he, <laughs> he cheated around the course last year with finding sprinkler heads Every, <laughs> everywhere he got into trouble, he found a sprinkler head and got a free drop. So I feel like, I feel like Phil ran exceptionally good last year in Mexico. Yeah, so
1: I, I think I'm inclined to go with, you know, guys like Paul Casey, Fanau, um, maybe even Patrick Cantlay, who I know was playing really well at the Genesis Open at a cheaper price tag. I think people would be hesitant to kind of pay up for him. So I think some of those guys present a, a good bit of leverage on the field if the current ownership projections hold, which I know they'll change a lot. So that's kind of how I'm evaluating this range. Bunch of good options um, and really want to make sure that I can uh, focus on some of the guys who aren't going to carry too heavy ownership. I think Casey seems like the guy who's most deserving of the heavy ownership he might carry and the guy that the chalky play in this range that I'm most likely to kind of eat.
0: Yeah, he might be uh, considered the good chalk uh, one guy, I'm interested to see if the ownership projections on him rise throughout the week. Right now, they're not too high. I'm kind of hoping they get high so I can fade him because I'm a masochist and I played him for two <laughs> years at low ownerships and it didn't work. And now I want to fade him and have the ownerships go high. And that's Bubba Watson who got up to $8,900 and we, our models have him overpriced. Another guy though, that's difficult to tell, you know, how good the long-term scoring average for him is in terms of representing his skill because he had that difficult year last year. I know uh, I think he, he lost a lot of weight, might have been sick. Um, but this year he's played really well. He obviously won two weeks ago. He's got the distance to take advantage, short par 4, and those par 5. So I'm having a tough time knowing what to do with Bubba if we're going to project him at sub-10% ownership. I kind of hope he gets to 15+, plus. but I think he's in that – Group in the 7-8K guys who score well, they're guys in this group. You've got Berger, finale Leishman, Woodland, Chapel, maybe even Charlie Hoffman in the low 7s. As far as guys who are more like good finishers, Alex Norin, another guy, another Euro guy that seems to give me a little bit of trouble where I just never quite seem to be on him as high as the field. And he had another very good finish last week. You've got Molinari there at 7,300. He's got the best T20 odds of anybody at his price are lower, and that's a 36% chance we've got him at to T20. And Kucher as well, who just seems consistently underpriced. So uh, there are some other guys in there. I know Peters is a guy that looks like he's going to be very chalky initially at 8,300. And he wasn't chalky last week. Played him in tournaments. He did well. Was chalky two weeks ago. I didn't play him as much and he didn't do well. And Drew, I think him and Leishman are two guys that are opposite ends of the spectrum that sort of fit your tournament strategy in terms of how to approach them.
2: Yeah, I think last week was a really good example of, you know, two guys who everybody liked, and then they had one bad performance when they were chalky in Thomas Peters and Webb Simpson, and their ownership came way down, while their price also came down. And I think if you look at and Daniel Berger, you could say the same. His price didn't come down as much, but similar thing last week, where he had that one really bad week the week before at Genesis, and then he came back and played really well. And I think it just speaks to, like, look, golf is hard, and there's some variance that goes into this with these guys. And so Mark Leishman, uh, two weeks ago at, at Genesis, was really heavily owned, was one of the you know better plays in the mid eights. He failed miserably. Was never even close to seemingly uh, making the cut. And now he's down to seventy six hundred. He's priced really affordably, and early ownership projection seems like no one's on him. And so you know, what did he do to deserve? Going from, you know, 25% ownership at 8.5k to sub 10% ownership at 7.5k, I, I don't, I don't understand why one tournament would make that big of a difference. So, uh, Leishman is the type of guy, the type of profile that I look for in, t- in terms of tournament plays, uh, that will often find their ways into, you know, not only reasonably high ownerships in my MME pools, but into my like three maxes and my single entries and stuff like that, because I feel like those are the, the types of bets to just, you know, take, take advantage on a a bounce back situation with Leishman Um, and so he's he's definitely one of those guys that fits that mold for me this week
0: yeah and Leishman broke out last year and if you look at his 40 round moving average if you look at the tee to green strokes gained, it's held pretty steadily since he broke out so it wasn't like you know one crazy blip and he's come back down to earth he's held pretty steady up there with a tee to green there you know comparable to a Sergio Garcia type so He's played very, very well. Uh, Daniel Berger, you had mentioned in there. Uh, right, I know he did well last week, so maybe he gained some steam. But right now, I see a sub 8k Daniel Berger uh, at an ownership percentage around six to seven percent, and um, my mouth starts to water there. So he's someone I'm into. Brandon Grace is somebody that, in you know, single entry three max tournaments, I like taking a play like that where. I think in MME, when people spread things around, you're not going to get this huge ownership disparity between like a Grace and a leashman, for example. I'd rather play Leishman. But sometimes when you get into the single entry or the three max, you get these guys who are like eight percenters in MME, but no one plays them when you have to whittle down the player pool a bit further, even though they're not far off. So I like that. And Colin, I know you play a lot of the three max single entries versus Drew and I do a lot of the MME stuff. I don't know if there's any guys like that that stick out to you, you know, specifically for those formats.
1: Yeah, I mean, it it seems a little early, but it's hard for me. I think at the top uh, end of the pricing tier was where it seemed like there were maybe some obvious spots that ownership was getting a little too congregated and people stood out as good values. As I hit this 7K range, it seems like there's maybe some bad plays. Like, uh, you know, definitely want to avoid Matthew Fitzpatrick if his ownership projection holds where it is. Probably want to avoid Xander if it holds at, you know, 13%. So there are a couple of guys that I see as bad plays, but even the guys who are a little bit lower owned, you know, they have a little bit lower top 20 probability. And um, it's hard for me to separate right now between like, you know, eight to 10 golfers, including some of the guys you mentioned, someone like Matt Kuchar. I think that Pat Perez on both the fantasy model and the finished probability model that we have over at Daily Roto from Data Golf stands out as a supreme value. And, Someone that, especially in large field tournaments, like maybe his ownership still is not going to get quite as high as it should. So I think Perez is another example of the the kind of good chalk that I'll probably end up playing this week. Uh, well, you know, I'll try to avoid the the Fitzpatrick or Xander type plays, um, just because the the fancy projection that we have on Perez implies that you know maybe he should be anywhere from eight hundred to a thousand dollars more expensive.
0: Yeah, and it is difficult to. As you, you said, just discern this tier because there are so many strong golfers and that's kind of how they've been pricing things recently. Uh, you know, another guy we haven't touched on too much, but Gary Woodland, who's been a favorite. He's a guy who disappointed last week. I guess, well, I guess it depends. He made the cut, which was a, a feat in and of itself <laughs> last week, but, uh, had a, had a very rough final round and just not a very good weekend overall, but he's someone I consider like a DK score, a guy who can definitely make an eagle. On the par five, you're going to get four full rounds. He's only seventy six hundred, and uh, as Drew had mentioned on our our projections, powered by Data Golf over on DailyRoto you have the ability to move these. Uh, weights around and you want to wait recent form or sometimes I like to jack the recent form up just to see who rates well good in that I'm not going to use that as my final projections but I like to see if there's you know something I'm missing on a guy and Woodland someone we've talked about all all year long is how some of the data from last year might not be that good but if you jack up the recent form quite a bit he becomes you know the best non-DJ play basically in the entire field so I like him a lot. It is difficult to get through all of these names, but Molinari, someone I mentioned as a guy who has good finish odds. I have a tough time telling what to do with him in a field like this. Before, you know, we recorded, we were talking about how last year I full faded him at the PGA Championship, just thinking this is a course that rewards distance. You know, Molinari's not known for his distance. Uh, and in that type of tournament last year, obviously if you were playing the Million Maker or something, you're like, well, I need a guy who can legitimately win, can legitimately top five, and I just don't think Molinari has that type of upside. So what does he do? He goes out, gets a ton of birdies on a course that rewards distance, ends up finishing second place. I think he was tied second place. Uh, so you know, from a macro perspective, I feel like you fade Molinari because no-cut event where you need DK scoring – You know, that kind of mitigates what he does best as an asset in fantasy golf. But as we see sometimes, guys who have good scoring averages are going to have good finishes from time to time. So I'm really tone on Molinari. Drew, you've been with me on like kind of the the Molinari seesaw of whether or not to play him the last year or so. Do you have any uh, Molinari hot takes?
2: I think my, my takes now are just, I'm just gonna let ownership projections decide for me, essentially, and, you know, if he's gonna be sub, let's say, 8-9%, I'm probably gonna play him. Sim, similar to Matt Kucher, like if the, if the idea that The that these guys who are who make a high percentage of cuts who are very consistent players lose value by not having the cut and not gaining those advantages. If that idea spreads and it becomes commonplace that hey these guys aren't as good of plays uh, as they normally are, then I'm going to take advantage of ownership kind of trending down on on these types of plays. Um, I still think, you know, at the end of the day. I want good golfers, and I think Molinari is probably underpriced uh, for how good he is, maybe slightly, considering how strong the mid-7Ks is, um, and not egregiously like he often is when most of these mid-7K guys are kind of priced in the 8s. Um, but I still think if he's going to be underpriced, I'll probably still nibble on some. Um, he just might not make that like three max single-entry type lineups that I'm trying to build. And I think with Molinari also, I th- think when I was looking at the course history
1: stuff, he finished 15th in the field last year as far as stroke skiing tee to green. So d- despite, you know, we talked about maybe it's a distance course, maybe it's not. Who knows? Uh, he was right there next to Paul Casey as far as tee to green play. So I think it's definitely, you know, the type of thing where he can still get to some of these par fives. He can still make birdies. And at his cheap price, I think that's pretty good. And I think some of that stuff, you know, it's, it's a lot of narrative. Like, Matt Kuchar, because he makes a lot of cuts, people don't talk about his upside. But if you look at the majors last year, he finished uh, fourth at the Masters, ninth at the PGA Championship, second at the, the Open Championship. S- like, So, I mean, what else do you want from a guy, uh, you know, yeah. like, at that point? Like, that's that's plenty of upside. Yeah, he hasn't won a major, but, um, like, you know, what are you going to do? 11, yeah, 11, I, I mean,
2: 11, uh, 11 top 10 finishes last year in 28 events for Kucher. Like another guy wow. that like, no wins, and he hasn't won since 2015, but again, like lots of top 10s, and and I think some of those guys, same with Paul Casey, Paul Casey has uh, 37% top 10s, uh, or better in the last, uh, three years, I believe it is when I was looking through. So like, the, you know, the upside because the guys aren't there in contention, you know, winning the event on Sunday doesn't mean they're not, um, still able to put up, uh, upside, especially when you get into these types of price tags. Yeah.
1: yeah and I think it's, that's it's like the, oh, I was just going to say, it's not like Kucher's 10k and he's priced up uh, amongst like guys who are, you know, winning multiple tournaments every year and they're major champions and everything. Like he's priced with Kevin Kisner, Adam Hadwin, Brendan Steele, like Russell Henley. So like those guys aren't, you know, contending most majors. Obviously Duffner's won one before, but. Uh, I think Kucher is a good buy, especially if he's going to end up at, like, the low teens or high single-digit ownership.
0: Yeah, I mean, he could be your fourth, fifth, you know, possibly even sixth most expensive golfer in your lineup. Uh, so that's definitely an important consideration. And I think the thing to do, too, when you leverage finish probabilities is, I mean, as good as it is to isolate the scoring points, um, because that's very important when projecting the overall uh, fantasy value of a golfer but when you leverage the finish probabilities if a guy has a high chance of a good finish you know when he does have that good finish he's he's gonna score some birdies and he's gonna get those big place points I'm not I'm having a tough time like fully articulating what I mean there but uh, I do think sometimes those guys have more upside than we think we do like we kind of think of finish points guys as like safer guys when really we should be thinking of them as you know to a certain extent, upside, guys, especially if the ownerships are right. Um, but it is interesting that our initial run of the projections powered by Data Golf over on DailyRoto.com, it doesn't have anybody as a positive value at sub 7K, which is interesting in a no-cut event where you've got Dustin johnson as a really really strong value so i think that goes back to colin what you said about mostly skipping that 8k 9k tier if you're building around dj and just going all 7k guys the guy that our model does like the most sub 7k is jonathan vegas Uh, i don't know if you guys see anybody that you'd be willing to take chances on down there in some dj lineups where maybe you do want to fit in a secondary type of stud i'll throw it to you colin
1: I I mean, I think Vegas makes some sense for that type of golfer. Like I mentioned, with especially with the value guys, I think you are chasing DK points more in a no-cut event, and uh, he's a guy that has the distance to score on those par 5s. So even if he doesn't finish super highly, I think that there's some upside there. I believe we saw it at the no-cut event to start the year, uh, what he was capable of. So I think he's definitely the best play in this range. I haven't dug too much into these other golfers. Below 7K at first glance, I wasn't interested in most of them. But uh, if I was going to chase anything, I think it would be trying to find a guy with an outlier skill set that you're just hoping maybe an eagle on a par five is enough at a super cheap price if you're going with the DJ build.
0: All right. Uh, we've got a couple minutes left here. Let's you know go for some hot takes. Drew, what's your hot take of the week i know you you've mostly thought about stuff so far in terms of you know macro roster construction so it could be something macro or micro
2: yeah i think um i think rom's gonna win so there there's my prediction rom rom wins put it on the board build around rom and gpps
1: i like it colin what's your hot take I think just keep pounding the balance contrarian approach. So to me, that means uh build at least uh w- one of my, you know, main GPP lineups fading everybody above $10,000 and focusing on the low owned really high probability plays that are kind of hovering in that 10% to low teens ownership projections. So I think that, um, Obviously, these top-end golfers can win, and they're supposed to win most weeks, but I think both you and I have seen the benefit that can happen in those weeks where 100% of the
0: field loads up on at least one 10K-plus guy, and none of them finish inside the top two. You know what, Drewby? i I'm going to one-up you. I'm going to make a GPP lineup with no one above 9K. Ha-ha. Take that. <laughs> You're no one above 10K. So balance contrarian, I'm going to take that to the extreme this week. I definitely think you can do it with the guys like Finau. and... Cantley, Casey, even though Casey himself won't be contrarian, but just as part of that build, uh, in that range and the high seven guys like Burger, Grace, and whatnot. So I I'm gonna go a fully contrarian balanced. Um I guess I should have my own hot take. I'm gonna I'm gonna just call Paul Casey the winner. I'm on this Paul
2: Casey kick. Uh let's get him a win this week, but Break that uh, we're running out of time out. here, huh? Break that that's streak. Week. 2014 was the last uh, the last win for Paul Casey. So you're you are going out on a limb there. I'm going out on a limb. Hot take: Paul Casey wins. Uh, that's
0: going to do it for us on going for the green on the Fantasy Sports Network. Make sure you go to dailyroto.com/slash premium. Check out our fantasy golf packages powered by Data Golf.
2: Thanks for tuning in, everybody. Best of luck in all your contests.